Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This episode of 17th Century Warfare is brought to you by those great guys over at onlinegreatbooks.com to explore the greatest literature from Western, Northern, Eastern, Southern civilizations and to properly immerse yourself in the experience of actually reading a book on time for once before exploring the next one on a very organised but also fun schedule and being able to nerd out about these books with other people who care just as much as you, check out OnlineGreatBooks.com and you'll get 25% off your first three months if you use the code DIP, but also if you follow the link in the description of this episode below. If you look at the description of this episode, you'll also find a link to Studio Earphones, where if you use the code WDF15, you'll be able to get 15% off your latest order of some kind of listening equipment, be that headphones, earphones, or whatever else takes your fancy. Studio Earphones and OnlineGreatBooks.com are really good to end diplomacy fails by sponsoring us for 
well, history in general. So show your appreciation to them and to me by checking them out. All right, guys, enjoy the latest episode. Welcome history friends, patrons all, to our 30 Years War series looking at 17th Century Warfare, Episode 4. Last time we assessed the military revolution idea and examined its different facets. Our goal, we said, wasn't to be boring and engage in needless debate of things that aren't all that interesting, but to use the military revolution as a good guide for our analysis of warfare in the 17th century. What was warfare actually like? What made it different to warfare of previous centuries? And was it all that different for that matter? What kind of consequences emerged from the 17th century's way of doing warfare? Who were the major winners and losers of the new ideas or new approaches to making war? All of these are questions that interest us, and in this episode we're going to look in particular at one aspect in particular of the 17th century that made it so unique and interesting. That is, the increasing sophistication and defensibility of fortifications, built in a new style and arraigned against the enemy, known as the Trace Italienne. France will be our lens for this episode, and in the next episode, we'll spend more time looking at how French armies developed during this period as well. Before we begin, though, I just want to let you know a quick bit of housekeeping. You see, for the last two weeks, we haven't been doing any Korean War episodes, and we've been cramming two episodes of 17th Century Warfare in each week, but I've come to a decision recently. My decision is as follows. Don't worry, it's nothing too revolutionary. All it is is, well, a way that will hopefully make sure that you guys aren't too overwhelmed. What we'll be doing is, instead of releasing one episode of the 30 Years War every week, we'll be releasing one every two weeks, at least until November, where the whole dual episodes being released at the same time kind of comes to an end. Don't worry, because you won't be missing out any of the 30 Years War story, because I've calculated that by doing this, we'll be kind of well set up on our way to finish 17th century warfare, but not to properly get into the 30 Years War story just yet. What that means for you is that once we finish Versailles in July, then we'll be looking at the proper 30 Years War story, but... These episodes on 17th century warfare in the meantime will whet your guys' appetites and help you kind of get a feel for what's coming and what's on the way. I also do this because I want to focus properly on the Korean War and indeed when we return to the Korean War next week we will have two episodes for normal listeners and three for, well, patrons because patrons are always an episode ahead. So hopefully that makes sense. I'll be announcing it properly on the website or on the Facebook and all that kind of thing. So Just so that you're aware, if you're listening to these, like, on the day they come out, I know there's people like you out there that do listen to these episodes on the days they come out. So, since you're here, and since you're really up to date, I thought it's only right to keep you guys kind of in clue with what my schedule is. Alright, so let's actually get into this episode on 17th Century Warfare. Even though the 17th century is our primary focus, to understand what made the new method of fortification so effective, 
we had to bring our story back to the 15th century. It was in the later phase of the 1400s that European warfare was moving away from its medieval reliance on high, thin stone walls and towards a new approach altogether. Throughout the preceding and indeed the following years, technology had rushed to keep pace with demand. If new cannons were on the scene, capable of knocking down entire structures which had once kept the enemy at bay, then it was necessary for this gap between the offensive and defensive weapon to be bridged. The region where this bridging first took place was in the middle of the 15th century in North Italy. Michael Roberts' initial explanation of the military revolution completely glossed over the idea of fortifications as belonging to the school of significant military developments in the 17th century. Roberts focused instead on the armies themselves and their adoption of new drills and tactics. It took Geoffrey Parker, writing onwards from the 1970s, to make the point that these armies were seriously impacted and their very composition was influenced by the increased toughness of the fortifications which they would have to face. The simple version of the military revolution theory, when applied to fortifications, emphasises the trace Italien and states because it became harder to crack the increasingly tough fortified nuts, armies didn't just focus on seizing them but also on starving them out. And in order to do this, armies had to increase in size. Because you can't really very well surround and starve out a fortress if you only have an army of about 1,000 men or so. In order to pay and organise these men, military bureaucracies grew and standing armies followed this growth. In our first episode we saw how developments in society, using the case study of England, resulted in less emphasis on knights and more emphasis on paid professionals for the sake of flexibility. The Trace Italian system furthered these ideas, which were hatching across the continent in different ways. Above all, the appearance of so many sophisticated fortresses necessitated the development of schools of military thought and practice, and of engineers capable of besieging them with lines of circumvallation and contravallation, and the transportation of the weaponry necessary for bringing the walls and fortresses down. Maybe this was an abundance of spades or of gunpowder charges used to blow the mines, as seen during the last siege of Vienna for instance, or maybe it was simply an issue of supplies and providing enough for the besieger to survive the attrition which would be endured during the all-weather siege. Of course, if the defender didn't want to be overtaken by this organisational buzz, he would have to come up with new designs of his own. This is where things get a bit sketchy, because some historians like Geoffrey Parker emphasise the importance of the Trace Italian style, while others, like John A. Lynn, who has been with us for our Louis Arms and Arms series and throughout the wars of Louis XIV in general, make the point that by the second half of the 17th century, if not earlier, the ability of the attacker to succeed had more than outstripped the ability of the defender to resist. If an army laid siege and was well provisioned, in other words, he would almost always succeed against the defender, no matter how strong the defender's defences were. It was only a matter of time. Parker took issue with this generalisation and would point out that even if this was generally the case, to carry out these successful sieges, a military revolution would have to be engaged with to deal with so many varied sieges of such incredible cost. The contracts and administrations of medieval Europe would never have been capable of conducting such complex and demanding tasks as laying siege to a fortress of the 1600s, 
even if they possessed and had been trained to use the cannon. The military revolution was more than really an adoption of cannons and the defenders' responses of improving the fortifications. You see, it was also a literal revolution in how states armed themselves, organised themselves and prepared themselves for such sieges. These preparations were necessary to field the cannons, to equip them with gunpowder stores, to transport these cannons to the right place and then to equip the soldiery with the same resources. And not to mention the fact that the men would have to be trained in detail in the art of taking these fortresses down and what the best practices were and of course what to avoid. The men on hand would also have to be increased if the trenches were to be properly dug around and up to the fortress and if that fortress was to properly be cut off. Manning these trenches and effectively storming the fortresses when the time came also required a lot of manpower, since the fortresses which were being attacked were designed to help a smaller force resist a bigger one. So, what do you do? You bring a big force, as big a force as you possibly could. These points were all connected, but this brings us to the critical question. You see, I keep talking about fortresses and the increased strength of them in comparison to their medieval predecessors, but what exactly made them so effective at resisting the enemy and provoking a revolution in how the attacker and thereafter the state conducted their business. We will spend some time answering that question in this episode and in episodes to come, but as Geoffrey Parker noted, the crucial influence on the evolution of strategic thinking in the 16th century was the appearance of an entirely new type of defensive fortification, the Trace Italienne, a circuit of low, thick walls punctuated by quadrilateral bastions. In the course of the 15th century it became obvious that the improvements in gun founding and artillery had rendered the high thin walls of the Middle Ages quite indefensible. A brief cannonade from the bombards brought them crashing down. Parker captured the two most important developments here. The first was the replacement of the thin, high stone walls with lower, thicker earthen walls which could hold their own artillery. The second was to create bastions out from these walls and to build them in an arrowhead design to eliminate the blind spots which were present in the square or round towers of yore. To take a few examples of where these technological comparisons mattered so much, think about the Reconquista of Spain. The conquering of the old Islamic portions of Spain was so successful because The Moors mostly inhabited castles, and these old medieval-style castles were immensely vulnerable to the canons of the Castilian and Aragonese crowns. Think also of how the English castles fell to France in quick succession in the latter half of the 1400s. This was also down to the use of cannon trains, sometimes containing as much as 180 pieces, being brought to bear against fortifications from a previous era, castles that had once held their own against kind of like medieval armies with no real sense of using heavy cannons on an organised basis, but these castles were now hopelessly outmatched when it came to defending themselves against, well, big, ruddy, enormous cannons. If Europe was now populated by a load of obsolete castles, then that meant the attackers would have a field day until the defenders caught up with their own defensive technology, if indeed the defenders caught up at all. 
The first peoples to realise that a complete revolution in how they defended themselves was necessary were the Italians, whose city-state armies had battered each other's forts for hundreds of years, and where the siege was the default method of defeating your enemies. This again is echoed by Geoffrey Parker when he writes, Military architects in Italy, where siege warfare was most common, were the first to experiment with new techniques of fortification which might withstand shelling, from about 1450, when it made its first appearance, until the 1520s, when it was fully fledged. It was a development which revolutionised the defensive-offensive pattern of warfare, because it soon became clear that a town protected by the Trace Italienne could not be captured by the traditional methods of battery and assault. It had to be encircled and starved into surrender. Once it became clear that the new technologies present in the Trace Italian system were a great leap forward from the old style of defence, Europeans rushed to implement them in their own states and create the kind of fortifications which could actually, yeah, defend something, rather than merely distract a large army before inevitably falling to its forces. These miracle fortresses were brought to every place where significant conflict would be likely. So think of the Rhine, the Low Countries, the south coast of England, along the Danube, etc. Consequently, it meant that when warfare did come to these regions, such as the Dutch Revolt, or even during the wars between the Spanish and French along the Rhine Valley, or even later on with the wars of Louis XIV, sieges became the order of the day. On the other hand, though, those areas where fortresses were less common, such as the majority of the British Isles, with the exception of the south as we mentioned, the interior of France, or the east of Europe in Poland, and into the wilder steppes, pitched battles became more important. Of course this didn't mean that Britain, France, Poland, etc. possessed no fortresses, but that the choke points of the Rhine or Low Countries, for instance, were less obvious, and warfare was adapted across Europe as a result. So when one asks the question of how the Dutch managed to resist the Spanish in the first place, or why the Dutch revolt lasted 80 long years, this question is answered by the plethora of fortresses made in the Trace Italian style, and placed in critical points along borders, beside rivers, or as anchors in the countryside. An immensely costly and time-consuming process would have to be engaged with every time a fortress in the Dutch or Spanish Netherlands was to be taken, and thus the Spanish military supremacy, which was brought to bear on several occasions against the French, during the French Wars of Religion, for example, was not as immediately obvious or effective. Because when the Spanish fought in the French Wars of Religion against the interior of France, they came across a very few actual Trace Italienne-style fortresses, whereas when the Spanish fought against the Dutch in the Low Countries, pretty much every important direction was covered by such a fortress. To take this point further, in regions like the Wild Steppes, where fortresses were uncommon among the tribal or raiding societies that dominated, cavalry became all-important instead. Indeed, in portions of Europe where fortresses were less common and cities dominated, think of the heartland of the Holy Roman Empire for instance, cultures of cavalry taking precedence over all other units on the battlefield actually took root. Where fortresses did dominate the landscape though, these were brought up to such a degree of finesse and sophistication so as to defy all but the most equally sophisticated, patient and well-prepared enemy armies sent to seize them, so long as these increasingly important bastions of defence dotted those strategically important portions of the country, 
it was almost pointless to engage in any pitched battles at all. Our attentions are turned yet again to the regions where fortresses were the most important, historically speaking, along the Franco-Flanders border, within the Netherlands and along the Rhine. Later developments in the 1600s which enabled fortresses to equip longer-range artillery pieces, which could actually strike at a besieging force from a long range, provided further challenges to the besieger. Developments like these made the work of the French military engineer par excellence Vauban so critical for French security from the 1670s, and his work left a legacy which actually saved France from total destruction in the twilight campaigns of the War of the Spanish Succession in the opening years of the 1700s. In addition, the Dutch ability to harness the geography of their flooded lands and hunker down in their fortresses saved their country from becoming an Anglo-French vassal state in the early 1670s. The prominence of France in these examples provides us with a good opportunity to look at a counter-argument levelled against the simplicity and self-evident nature of the military revolution idea. John A. Lynn has been with us for several episodes in the past, and he provided us with fantastic work which we have used to trace French exploits in warfare under Louis XIV. Lynn's expertise in this field, and his familiarity with French military history, makes him an important source for considering how the military revolution affected the French. It should come as no surprise then, as far as the military revolution in France goes, John A. Lynn is not wholly convinced of its usefulness. Let's examine why. To begin with, Lynn sets forth a list of requirements for a successful fortress in the early modern era of the Trace Italienne. According to Lynn, To be effective in the gunpowder environment of early modern warfare, defensive works had to, number one, protect the fortress from storm by enemy, number two, absorb bombardment without toppling or crumbling, three, shelter the defenders from attacking fire, and four, subject the attackers to effective artillery fire. Bastions played an important role in this procedure because they provided the defenders with an ideal position that covered all areas the attackers could hide in, and which ensured that lead could be rained down without exception. Bastions, as Lynn points out though, were not as important as the defenders' ability or determination to resist. They were far from magic bullets, and this explains why attackers were able to overwhelm the fortresses if they tried hard enough. Adding ditches, using earthen ramparts, lengthening the depth of the defences and dotting them with artillery all increased the capabilities of the defenders, and if you've listened to our series on the Long War and saw the defenders battle the Ottomans in the last siege of Vienna, then you'll recall how desperate the fight became as the enemy battered through each line of defence. It was thanks to the innovations of the Trace Italienne that Vienna was fortified to such a standard, even while the defences appeared rudimentary on the surface, because they're using earth and wood and, like, sloping hills, etc., they were in fact highly effective. Still, as any critic of the military revolution theory, or even of the supremacy of the fortress idea would point out, the defenders at Vienna were only successful because a relief army arrived, famously, just in time, and not because the Viennese actually defeated the Turks by using the power of their own defences. The Turks, as the attacking force, still managed to beat through every layer of defence, but the point was that all of this took time, and a great deal of manpower to be expended. Long enough 
for a relief army to save the city and inflict the famous defeat on the Grand Vizier. One of the arguments that Lin takes issue with is the idea that larger fortresses required larger armies to besiege, and that this drove up army size, and required a professional permanent soldiery to continue the fight all year round, which led, very conveniently, to the standing army of later years. In Lin's view, the French case can give us pause for thought. To John A. Lin, artillery mounted on the walls of the fortress was the most important development, since this had not been possible before, when castles featuring thin stone walls provided inadequate support for the weight and recoil of the cannon fire. In line with this idea, Lin points out that the besieging army established their lines of contravallation, the name given to trenches dug around the fortress to effectively besiege it, not because the fortress was simply big, but because the besieging army was trying to stay out of range of the defenders' cannons. To stay out of range, trenches had to be dug in a huge circle, sometimes a mile or more out from the fortress. These lines of trenches would keep the defenders locked into their siege, but to be effective, the trenches would have to be stocked with manpower, thus driving up demand for more soldiers than usual. Lin's argument differs from the norm, because it was often just assumed that the inherent bigness of the fortress and the challenge it posed required more men, since the trenches had to be built further out from the fortress than they had been before. The point, Lin says, is to ask why these trenches had to be built so far out in the first place. Unless we consider the danger of artillery fire, the resulting revolutions in army size and military organisation don't really make sense. The artillery was thus the critical ingredient, in Lin's mind, for the resulting military revolution. Yet, you'll be happy to know that Lin also has a bone to pick about the idea that sieges on a grander scale resulted automatically in an increase in the size of European armies. In the French case at least, although the besieging armies might appear larger on paper, in actual fact the French maintained an average of 27,500 men as a besieging force, from the late 1400s to early 1700s, so that figure didn't change all that much. In other words, if the French army was marching to besiege a fortress between 1480 to 1715, it was generally in the realm of 25,000 men or so. But wait a minute, Zach, if this is true, then how do we explain the very real explosion and manpower within the French army, from 20,000 men overall in the late 1400s, to nearly 400,000 men during the War of the Spanish Succession in the first few years of the 1700s. Well, in Lin's view, the genuine increase in the overall size of the French army is explained less convincingly by the necessity of conducting sieges, since the sizes of the besieging forces didn't massively increase. Lin also makes the point that we can't claim that the number of sieges increased the paper size of the French army either, since it was actually quite unusual for the French to engage with more than one siege at a time. Alright then, so it wasn't the increased demands of the siege, thanks to the Trace Italienne, and it wasn't the number of sieges, so how do we explain the actual Whopper explosion in Louis XIV's armies later on in the 17th century? Well, to answer this question, we have to change our focus so that we're less taken by the offensive and pay more attention to the defensive. What do I mean by that? Well, in short, Lin argues that even though the Trace Italienne didn't result in a ballooning of the French army size, as more forces were needed to capture them, he makes the important and often overlooked point that more soldiers were needed to garrison the fortresses. 
The Trace Italien, you see, had resulted in an explosion of not merely army size across France, but also in the actual building of defensive works in the Trace Italien style. We have noticed this several times already, and we've also noted that it greatly aided the French in guaranteeing their security even when faced with multiple enemies. This one-two punch of several enemies converging on several sensitive spots explains the increase in army size better than any other formula. Louis XIV increased his army because France had more enemies, and so long as France had more enemies, she needed to defend her lands in more places. At critical choke points along the Rhine in the border with Italy, and most importantly of all, along the border with the Spanish Netherlands, this was where Vauban's engineering expertise and eye for the perfect defence helped to ensure that France was brimming with tough nuts to crack. As Vauban well understood though, it was one thing to pay for all these fortresses to be built and properly supplied, it was quite another to staff them with enough defenders to make building them worthwhile in the first place. To prove this point to you guys, consider the following figures. In 1666, during the War of Devolution, French army size on paper stood at 72,000 men, of whom 25,000 were said to be involved in garrison duty. By 1678, only a decade later, the size of the French army during the Dutch War had ballooned to 272,000 men. Yet of this number, more than 116,000 of them, as Lynn put it, stood behind walls. This is what we mean when we talk about French army size being on paper. 272,000 was an insane number of men for France to wield at that time. Yet when you consider that over 42% of this army was standing still, or in other words, engaged in defensive duties, this left the remaining 150,000 or so men in very high demand across the three major theatres. You may be wondering why exactly we're spending so much time on examples given by Louis XIV. Well, the major reason for this is that at least one historian has noted that, in his view, the military revolution did not apply to France, and that the massive increases in armies, in addition to the building program of defensive works and military bureaucracies which accompanied them, were down to the person of Louis XIV above all. But more than this, Lynn's facts and figures and his confrontation of the prevailing military revolution theory reminds us that across Europe, different circumstances and traditions of geography, politics and a morass of other issues could help to explain how warfare developed and technology progressed more than some silver or golden bullet of new technology which helped to explain it all instead. Lynn's emphasis on the French penchant for building Trace Italian-style fortresses in their problem areas would not have applied to other states that didn't have to defend three major border areas or face enemies in those three areas either, and thus their adoption of new military technologies and tactics tell very different stories. Lynn's mission to accurately explain not only the reasoning behind the increases in French army size, but also the actual genuine numbers involved, have made him a scholar of renown in his field. They also set him against the idea that the military revolution was the golden set of explanations which could handily explain how European warfare, society and military tactics developed. Every case was unique, and in the French case, there were far too many variables and inconsistencies over the 17th century to definitively prove that the military revolution even occurred. The traditional explanation, that Western Europeans when fighting in North Italy 
saw how snug the Italian system was and adopted it for themselves, holds less water than the idea that we have to actually look at what was going on in France at the time to make some sense of the gargantuan changes that occurred in army size fortress design and the resulting impact on French society. But then again, you could ask, why does it even matter? And why have I spent the episode assessing the application of the military revolution in France? Well, for two reasons above all. The first is that using Lynn's arguments has given us a handy guide for examining warfare in France during the period, and for discovering the genuinely impressive developments in army size and fortress number in a state of keen importance to the continent in the 17th century. The second is that it is important at all times to look at the arguments of both sides, and to emerge at the end of the debate with the most well-rounded answer. That is what I believe history podcasting should always be about. It would have been easy, of course, to look at the military revolution, then conclude that it had taken place without really taking the time to look at specific examples. And yeah, maybe if I'd done that, it wouldn't take me 12 episodes to cover 17th century warfare, but if I didn't look at how the military revolution affected Europeans, then I would be, quite simply, leading you guys astray. And this isn't to say that Geoffrey Parker's version of the military revolution theory holds no water. I definitely believe that the development of the Trace Italien changed everything, and that Europe was never the same after it adopted this new way of building and defending fortresses. Even Lynn does tacitly acknowledge that the abundance of men for garrison duty still technically proves Geoffrey Parker's theory that the Trace Italien led to growth of the French army. Yet, Lynn adds to this concession to Parker that the process wasn't as automatic as Parker seems to assume. Instead, the French army grew in size because the Bourbons harnessed and improved the fortresses within their realm. In Louis XIV's case in particular, he was bombarded with repeated calls from Vauban himself, that is, the man who stood to gain from a plethora of fortresses existing, that the Sun King should demolish some fortresses to save himself the manpower. But Louis wouldn't do it, and because his will was law, the fortresses remained in place. Lynn therefore reminds us that the military revolution, though it was a good idea in theory, can't be fully explained unless we look at the proper context of the state that it's being applied to. A blanket application of the theory just doesn't work, and it also means we miss the interesting details, well, at least I find them interesting, which characterised the way that the state was run. As John A. Lynn admitted, though, Geoffrey Parker has done notable service by drawing our attention to the way in which fortresses influenced the size of standing armies in a given political, strategic, and tactical environment. One of Parker's more provocative assertions, that the greater part of military expenditure in early modern Europe was lavished on the defence, does seem to hold, at least in the main. Finally, though, the reason why all of this is important is because Lynn hits us with what he believes is the major reason above all that France exploded its army size. It wasn't just because of the need to garrison the fortresses. Instead, the increases from 1635, which Louis XIV only improved upon, are explained by, first, the diplomatic isolation of France, and second, by the incredibly lofty goals which her administrations, under Louis XIII, and then Louis XIV tried to set in motion. Consider this, for instance. In 1635, Cardinal Richelieu's aim was to straight-up destroy Habsburg power centred upon Spain. He wanted, and for the sake of French security into the future, 
He believes that he needed to beat Spain down to the way it had once been, a divided, poor and demoralised European backwater. The rise of Spanish power, coming as the result of precious metals from the New World, the Reconquista and some good fortune thrown in, as well as some bad fortune for France, was an unprecedented factor in European history, and so long as Spain was in the ascendant, France never could be. If you remember Lynn's contributions to our series on the Franco-Dutch War, then his underlining of the uniquely French experience shouldn't be too surprising. Richelieu and Mazarin as the guiding lights of French foreign policy between 1635-60 to didn't forget their end goal, but they engaged in the war with Spain and with their allies during the Thirty Years' War with a degree of diplomatic finesse and tact that ensured French power, even while it grew, didn't scare off potential friends or result in the isolation of Louis XIII's realm. This gels well with the fact that French army size, notwithstanding the uncompromising ambitions of the two cardinals, remained quite static during that period of 1635-60. to However, it was once Louis XIV came to his majority and sensible cardinals were no longer around to impart advice, that the absolutist king changed everything. As John A. Lynn noted, Military expansion after 1659 was more substantial and more lasting. Louis XIV pursued a foreign policy that marked a very real break with those of the strong first ministers who manipulated the international scene before 1661. Richelieu and Mazarin had succeeded to some degree in isolating their enemies and gaining allies. The strategic lesson that Mazarin imparted to Louis had more to do with diplomatic finesse than naked force. Later, when Louis's brutal methods and obsession with the absolute security of France united the Grand Alliance against him, this seemed a new and catastrophic development. Gone was the standing of France as the guarantor of German liberties, the natural ally of the Dutch and the occasional friend of England. Louis's foreign policy doomed France to isolation in a hostile Europe. With several enemies, there emerged fighting on several fronts, and several French armies needed to fight there. This naturally resulted in an increase in the total number of men that Louis XIV put in the field. Without these circumstances, Lynn concludes, France would never had to have engaged in such enormous and costly building programs of so many trace Italian fortresses, and nor would the French king have been forced to engender unheard of increases in the size of his army. Thus we come back to our bread and butter in a sense, because the gist of Lynn's conclusion states that if we're going to understand the implementation of the military revolution in France, we have to first understand the diplomatic position of France, and how it changed from the Thirty Years' War to the War of the Spanish Succession. This, in my view, is fair enough, especially having seen what I've seen, and what we've both seen together, in the ambitions of Richelieu and his sudden sharp shock when France was nearly overrun in the late 1630s, in comparison to Louis XIV's bullish diplomatic approach, which made him few friends, but a great target of anti-French propaganda. However great the forces of the kingdom, one ought not to imagine that it alone can furnish troops to guard and maintain so many fortresses, and at the same time put armies in the field as great as those of Spain, Italy, England, Holland and the Empire joined together. These were the words of Vauban, the renowned French engineer, who pleaded to the end with Louis XIV to release garrisoned soldiers from the countless fortresses and even knock some of them down so as to be in a position to confront the armies of France's enemies 
on the field, or at least to act with more flexibility. Again though, as we said, Louis ignored him, and he didn't ignore him because military revolution and that was that, he ignored him because Louis XIV was a complex and fascinating character that needs to be properly understood and placed in the context of his time. In a sense, John A. Lynn concludes, Louis took heed of Vauban's logic, if not of his conclusions. The Sun King did not sacrifice his fortresses and their garrisons, as Vauban proposed, but instead he created the 400,000 man army to ensure his glory. For Louis XIV, the security and glory of France and its king were sufficient to justify the massive size of the army as much as the number of fortresses. On the other hand, the military revolution, as a device which was coined 250 years after Louis XIV's death, was not. So this episode's study of France reminds us that the military revolution was different as its tenets were adopted or ignored or superseded by other factors on the ground. In the next episode, having looked at the Trace Italienne in France, we'll be looking at the military revolution in action in the French army and in their military culture. Does that sound dull? Well, I can assure you that it's not. I hope you'll join me for that history, friends, but until then, my name is Zach, and you've been listening to the 30 Years War miniseries, looking at the 17th century, episode 4. Thanks for listening, guys, I really do mean it, and I'll be seeing you all soon. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.